Father Roman. So, Father Morgan from uh, the Catholic Parish of uh, Burley Heads, please come. Um, Mother Anne McGuinness, who's an Anglican school chaplain at the uh, Anglican, All Saints Anglican School. I should know that, I'm on the board, and my kids go there. And, of course, we know John Bell, um, who has already disclosed his Presbyterian leanings. Oh, you've got, excellent, got a microphone. Oh, you can, you can take that, we've got one spare. Um, we also have Ken Anderson. All the Uniting Church clergy are at Synod uh, at the moment, so we have to scrape the barrel of the retired ones. It's, it's a very, very prestigious barrel. Um, Ken um, uh, founded the biggest, uh, current biggest uniting church, I believe, in Australia, um, which is now called New Life, uh, but was Rabina Uniting Church. Has everybody got a microphone? I feel like I'm missing somebody else other than Roman, but um, bear with me. Da, 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 da. You're all here. Excellent. Is that on? Is that on? Hello? Mic check. Mic check. Yep, check. there you go. Yeah. Test. <laughs> Technology is wonderful when it works, isn't it? Um, the biggest challenge is to be able to get um, this number of ordained clergy to stay within time frame so you can have lunch at, um, at 12 o'clock, but we'll do our very, very best. Um, I'm wondering um, if you might uh, be open to share what your first memories are of attending church. What did it look like? What did it sound like? What did it smell like? Or taste like? Is that me? Yeah, okay. John, would you like to start? Uh, yes, uh, it was a busy uh, church. I had no idea that it was Presbyterian. We never talked about our denomination. And I remember it being a very positive experience, uh, probably because as a child, we never went into the church until we were eight. We'd only go in on festivals, Christmas, harvest, and a kind of children's prize thing. So I don't remember really anything about liturgy, anything about preaching, but I do remember that we had a very good woman who was in charge of the children's liturgy or the children's Sunday school for kids between the ages of three and eight. And I think, I mean, she's the woman who introduced me to God and it was her warmth and acceptance which convinced me that God was worth keeping in with. Morgan. I actually can't remember too much as a child because everything was in Latin. Um, I'm actually a baby boomer. I know I don't look that good. And uh, I can't remember too much until I was probably about five years of age. And then I became 
conscious that I was sitting somewhere other than a lounge room and things were beginning to be different for me. And one of the things I remember is we'd go from our school and to play football during lunch, the nuns would take us down the road to the big playing fields. That's where we'd play. And we'd have to stop outside this Protestant church, kneel on the concrete and say, we pray for the damn souls of this church. <laughs> and then we'd go on and play football. And that's the only time I ever really remember that I was different or we were different. So that's my first real experience. And then, of course, it got much better after that, thank goodness. But it's amazing, isn't it, how things change. Thanks. Anne. Um, yeah, I was born a cradle Anglican and I remember going to school to Sunday school, which was very happy, sort of halcyon days. But I think most significant for me was when I turned 16. You know, up until that stage, I'd gone through baptized, you know, been confirmed at 13. When I was 16, I had a boyfriend. And I was running out of, of um, enthusiasm, really, for Sunday school. And there was a youth service on a Sunday evening to which I decided to go and take my boyfriend with me. And it was wonderful because there was a Eucharist, but it was different. It wasn't like the one in the church that I didn't really connect with too much. It was different because we sang more contemporary songs and we sang as part of the, the liturgy, Sounds of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. And I connected for the first time in that space at, at night with candles, with the fact that here was a God who wanted connection, real connection with me. And so we went. I mean, that he was my childhood sweetheart, and he's sitting over there now, uh, 40, well, long more than 40 years later. But, but um, what happened then is I just found this mojo, and there was a whole lot of young people with the priest doing this thing differently. And a new priest came. We'd only started going, we'd only been about three times, I think, and a new priest came and said, oh, no, that's not a proper service. We'll now have sung even song. And he canned it, and we had sung even song. And we went once, and I left the church. I couldn't connect. The choir was singing. I didn't understand it. And I've actually had a bit of an aversion to even songs since that time, although I developed a real appreciation for traditional Anglican worship as I grew older and refound my way back to church, which actually was when we wanted to get married. So we thought we'd better go and see the priest again. But it taught me such a great lesson that I've never lost about inclusiveness and meeting people where they are and, and, and just being with the other and not holding so tightly onto what is proper and right and being more open. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Adelaide, you'll soon feel from my voice the culture, city of churches. But I grew up in Port Adelaide, which is the equivalent of Melbourne's Collingwood, and my parents moved into a new home around uh, 46 after my dad was home from the Navy. They'd been there two days, and a Methodist minister, we don't know how he found, he rode his bike two miles, knocked on the door, and asked two questions, the sort of questions that don't get taught in theological college. He introduced himself and said to my mother, do you have any children that would like to go to Sunday school? And the second question was, 
would you like to coach the netball team? <laughs> well, 20 years later, 20 netball teams, kids through school church. It was a church of about 70. It was wonderful. I would go to church with my mother, who'd been an Anglican. We'd get there 10 minutes early because she needed her quiet time. We'd walk in the door and there'd be a little old man on the door who would get down to my eye level, shake me by the hand, say, hello, Ken, how are you? He knew my name. Afterwards, he'd ask me about my football team and all that sort of thing. It was a great church. I grew up in Sunday school, Christian Endeavour, learned all my things, played sport, went on camps, had people have us home on Sunday nights after church, risking coffee spilled on their carpet. And I really believed that I belonged to a community. I found faith for myself after my intellectual growing up and learning about the Bible and found myself candidating for the ministry uh, after six years uh, training and working as an optician. Awesome. Have uh, I'm going to ask the panel if they've noticed any significant changes in numbers or demographics within their denomination in the last 10 to 15 years. I might start with Morgan. Yeah. Morgan, sorry. Morgan. Yes, yes, that's you. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, changes in demographics. It's really interesting. The Catholic Church it kind of has this idea that it just keeps going and it doesn't change. But in fact, it does. Like, some of the major changes is we've had a change in language. We're no longer in Latin. We're now in English. And in fact, we're no longer in English now that we're going to multi-languages. So that's even a, a change again. Another change would be there's this concept that the church is mainly of families, but in fact, the church is ageing, but also youngering, if I can make that word. What I mean by that is there seems to be an age group between 15 to 30 that's actually beginning to miss. And that has a whole lot of cultural understanding. As you know, the Catholic Church went through a huge upheaval in um, about 238 AD and and 285 AD and 3118, oh, I'm only joking, okay. But the huge upturn was in Vatican II, where we had this concept that we're not the church triumphant anymore. We're not the church with the bulwark and a wall that says no one else is here, that we're actually the church of communio or the church of mission. So the church, Catholic Church had a huge change of understanding or identity that in fact our churches are no longer facing the east. We're no longer great big aisles. That in fact we began to gather around an altar and the priest turned and faced the people. And we had this profound change of communio as the pilgrim church, the church gathered together that goes out on mission. Now, that happened probably 60, 70 years ago. Many people have not yet understood that. But it is part of the doctrine. So you actually have this doctrinal part of the church, but the people don't seem to be a part of that or understanding of it. And I don't think I would be alone 
and I'm happy to be corrected always, that I think there seems to be a gap between what the church thinks and what the church does, or what the church should be. That's most fascinating. Book a front seat, because this is going to be very fascinating in the next 10 years, beginning probably tomorrow after the election. <laughs> Thank you. Anne, what about Anglicans? As well, in my six years that I've been in Australia, because I was in South Africa prior to that, surprising me by my accent, um, I think that, that there certainly is a decline and an increase and certainly in the churches that I have been into and visited since my time here in the parish context, those that are declining are those that don't have the ability, the willingness, or the knowledge on how to change and how to move forward. Those that have made the transition, like this one in Stuart's capable hands, have seen a huge um, increase, as those of us who are here know. Uh, when Frank and I first came here, which is just before Stuart, there was a very small congregation. Now it's pretty packed every um, Sunday, which is wonderful. And I think it is because of the different ways you're doing it. In the school context, it's a very, very different context, entirely different. I moved from a parish priest to a school chaplain. And I had to change. I wasn't ready for that huge change because here you've got people who want to come at school. You've got people who don't want to be there. And it's really different the way in which we do church. We've had to take an approach that is not defensively apologetic but open to where they are, meeting them where they are. And the, the breadth of the Anglican church and the Anglican theology is a great gift because we're able to exercise that. And I think I can say fairly honestly that we are beginning to see a movement of change, a wave that's coming through the school as we adapt and change to the, who they are and, and where we can meet them best and how we can find ways of engaging with students and at the same time bring them into a space where they can consider the possibility of a faith and consider the possibility of a God who actually loves them more than they can ever imagine, and a Christ who wants to companion them. Thanks, Sam. What about you, Ken? Well, I sort of stand a bit in awe of traditions of churches like Anglicans and Catholics, but I come out of the Methodist tradition, and uh, there are a lot of traditions that we followed that have changed. For instance, when I was ordained in 1969, one of the traditions... One of the demands of ministry uh, at ordination, I had to sign a form where I pledged unswerving hostility to the liquor traffic. <laughs> Lots of changes. But then came the Uniting Church. Now, that's only 1978. And being involved in state and national work, particularly with uh, teenagers and mostly with young adults and leaders... I was one expected to do the rah-rah about the opportunity to become involved in the first truly authentic Australian church, fulfilling all of the commands of Christ to be together and rah-rah-rah. And we were excited and it was fantastic. But the census in 1992, I'm only going to quote one figure, said that the Uniting Church had lost 33% of its membership and churches were closing. I don't want to tell you what the figure was in uh, 2016 because it makes me cry. A whole range of reasons. There are 
bright spots because there are regional churches, but things like 75% of uniting churches, a large percentage of uniting, uniting churches around Australia have less than 35 members worshipping every Sunday. The average number of children in those churches are three. But then the great change with regional churches and so forth um, give indication that there is renewal. But some of the tensions that have come uh, through what have been traditions, and I, I really struggle, Stuart, with tradition, habit, custom, uh, cultural changes, biblical backgrounds, uh, what are just church deals. Um, so it's hard for me to get it all in, but that's the, the background picture. The Uniting Church has done really badly in terms of statistics. At one end, there are bright spots where traditions are being changed. I'm wondering, John, um, you, you do have the, the gift of travelling around the world and seeing lots of different contexts. Um, are we an exception in Australia or is this something that is being replicated in other mainline denominations around the world? No, I don't think that the Western churches uh, are really much different. I work in Canada and in, in the USA quite a lot. Most churches are experiencing, most traditional churches, you know, the, who've got pedigree going back to the Reformation or before that, are experiencing a numerical change, a decrease in numbers. Uh, Protestants are, di are discovering that they've got far too many buildings because they kept falling out with each other, starting a new denomination. Uh, building these palaces in 1840, which now in 2019 are in need of repair. And, and a whole lot of, of the, yeah, I would say the Protestant churches in America and Canada and Britain uh, are more concerned with administration than with evangelism or remission. Uh, the Catholic Church has different profiles in different parts of the world. You know, I've been in Asia where there are huge Catholic churches, great numbers. Uh, the Anglican Church... I, I, I suppose it depends where you go. It's a bit... I mean, the question, actually, I should never have answered because you cannot... You cannot just say this country is growing, this country is decreasing. Everything's to do with the context to some extent. And the context in Australia is very different from the context anywhere else. And, Stuart, could I just add that I hope we don't just stick to our little cabbage patch because around the world uh, the numbers of Christians are increasing like crazy but not in first world, not in, or the UK has actually picked up, but not in the United States, Australia, but in parts of South America, in uh, Korea, China, uh, and Africa. Uh, like the World Methodist Council has had one million new members ever since 1990, but they're not in the United States. So it's the big picture that sometimes we need yeah, to see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to talk specifically about traditional worship. And this, this is a little bit fraud. I'm going to ask you for a one-sentence answer. Clergy. Do you feel traditional worship in your context is thriving, maintaining its impact, or declining? Would you like to start, Morgan? All three. I have... I'm the parish priest... I have two curates or uh, parochial vicars with me. So as a parish of three priests, most people think it's up to the priest to be able to be the leader of worship. 
but I'm trying to instill in my parishioners now. I have nine communities, and someone asked me the other day, how many churches do you have in your parish? And I said, 10,500. They go, what? And I said, every family is a church. If you don't get that, you don't get me. And so when you talk about traditional worship, is it maintaining? Yes. We have two and a half to 3,000 people worship every Sunday in this parish. Two and a half to 3,000 people. When it comes Christmas, it's six to 8,000 people Catholic come to the Catholic Church here in my parish. So they're huge numbers, but in fact, there are 53,000 Catholics in this area. So you have two to 3,000, we're not doing enough, I can tell you that right now. And so we can become complacent, and complacency leads to just doing boring. One of my things of understanding is, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. And most people have heard that, a couple of people shaking their heads, and it's true. So I don't believe in the McDonaldization of church. That every, so we have nine services or masses every Sunday. Every mass is exactly the same. And it drives me nuts because I think the early morning mass should be quiet, maybe with traditional Latin hymns, maybe some Latin in it and quiet. And then the Sunday evening should be a beat-it-out rock group. And then I think we should have maybe a Taizé-style worship on a Saturday evening. And I think we can have different styles of worship is what I'd like to move towards. But I think we're about 100 years away from that. So we are maintaining, but there is a movement of people to say, what more can we do? How does this connect with the people and what their understanding of their life? When I first came to the church, there was a sign um, that as you, as you go in, okay, just at the back, there was an exit sign. Have you got one? Okay, just over there. An exit sign. I put them all on the outside of the church as a joke for one weekend. They said, why'd you do that? And I said, because you're not exiting from here, you're exiting from the world to come in here. And I try to get people to have, look at the world in different ways. How do we understand who we are in different circumstances? So some weekends we'll have a focus like we did uh, last weekend on Mother's Day, the weekend before on mental health. What's coming up is Reconciliation National Sorry Day and Reconciliation Day. So putting in the Mass that connection to the world and everyday celebrations of the civic, and I think that's important. So change is important, but you don't beat people over the head with change. You actually get them to understand what does this mean for them. So we're maintaining, we're actually moving, and we're actually renovating and revisioning as we go at the same time. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's what good. I'm going to give. It also answers the other um, characteristic of clergy. You can make one sentence go for a 20-minute sermon. And so you demonstrated that very, very well. <laughs> and I'm guilty of that more than most. Um, Em. Yeah, in one sentence. Uh, and in the school context, I'm going to relate this. I think that we are hopefully finding ways of expressing the beautiful traditions of the church in a way that reaches, touches, 
our children, our students, our staff, our parents, and also that we are rekindling a very old and lost tradition of the church, and that is that of meditation and contemplation. I think that traditional worship is maintaining itself in small churches, in small services, in large churches, and that I would not want to be part of changing any of that. If people who are in their 60s and have worshipped that way all of their life, they need to keep worshipping. And the 7.30 here service here on Sunday morning is a beautiful sung Eucharist, as good as I saw in the Melbourne Cathedral last Sunday. I don't want to change that. These folk need to be able to worship like that. I pray that they will not be critical and say that everyone else should. And I pray that we will have services that will be inclusive of others because I couldn't bring my 25-year-old dentist granddaughter about to be married to the 7.30 service here. It would be so far out of her world. Some of you will be angry with me for saying that, but that's the reality. I'd love to bring her to 9.30. And my 22-year-old grandson, who's a fly-in, fly-out minor, wouldn't cope with either of them. But I'd be really pleased to bring him here on Thursday night at 6 o'clock and then go across to the kitchens for dinner. Thanks, Ken. I, I, I should add that, that uh, while Ken is an ordained Uniting Church minister, he does actually worship in our church community here in uh, Rabina, and we seem to have picked up a collection of retired Uniting Church ministers, um, in mostly in our traditional worship. Uh, they're, they're refugees. <laughs> <laughs> Again, John, from, from a, a, a more broad perspective, um, are you seeing traditional worship thriving or maintaining or declining? I think there's two things. Where it has done well with integrity and enthusiasm, people come. Amen. Where it is done reluctantly, with a sense of failure and uh, more of the same, then it then it goes. But for me, that you know, there's a a very profound scriptural insight that you get early on in the Book of Genesis when God makes makes the world. Uh, it makes the the productivities in six days, and each day is different. And in each day, God makes more than one thing. And then God has a rest, which is another contrast. Right at the beginning of the Bible, God reveals that the maker of the universe is a God who loves diversity. And the church, if it's faithful to God, in its worship has to allow for the possibility of diversity. The Catholic Church, you know, which I occasionally attend, used to have in the past three different services on Sunday, not a matter of three masses, but three different kinds of service. Episcopal Church in Scotland was the same. Um, they would have a, a choral Eucharist, they would have a mass, uh, they would have an even song, and they might have solemn benediction with the exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. We actually, in most of the mainline churches, have decreased the variety rather than increased it. And God's a God of diversity. Great. I wonder if you can share... Um, if there are any specific struggles that your church or denomination is facing that are specific to its traditions. Do you want to start this time? Okay. There are a number that the Uniting Church has faced. There are things that we knew historically and internationally happened to Uniting Churches. There is always a struggle 
over the emphasis of evangelism and justice. There's always a struggle about some issues of inclusiveness, and uh, we knew that. And it's happened uh, in a number of ways. The, um, the balance or the, the sort of the emphases of the three denominations, the edges of them that were cutting edges, seem to me to have been lost in, in sort of compromising together. So that what I thought was a beautiful balance of mission reflected in evangelism, in faith sharing and doing justice has been taken over by many, uh, or many would interpret the justice side has predominated and the mission side has been, uh, been neglected. And I have to say this, the pain that the Uniting Church has felt since early 90s over the sexuality issue has been almost too much to bear. So it's changed from attitudes to sexuality then through to leadership, and then through to same-sex marriage. I was the chaplain for John Maver, the president of the Uniting Church, when it reached its height. And what he had to endure from each side of the spectrum was unbelievable, and it's broken hearts. And you know the sort of division that's happened by talking to your friends. So that just a couple of months ago, when a final decision was taken to, when a, when a decision was being made to reopen uh, the debate that said it's appropriate for ministers to marry people of the same sex, uh, and churches had to decide individually whether that would happen on their property, it was challenged right through, and the vote came back something like 52 to 48. Now that's not deciding, that's showing a divided church and it's been very painful from both ends to live within that. Some of you haven't had to face that as a church. I understand that the Anglicans couldn't even get a resolution to their last synod that a working group be called to look at the whole issue. So that's been a major issue for us and I hope that some of the pain that's been felt in the Uniting Church can be alleviated as some of your denominations work with it. Thankfully, there's been an acceptance and an inclusion and uh, all are accepted, of course, and these possibilities right up to uh, people being married are there now. But it's taken so much energy and meetings and books and anger and some love. What about the Anglican Church? Yeah. Any particular struggles that our church is facing that are specific to Anglican specific traditions? To here. Um, in terms of the parish here in no, Anglican, or Angli or Anglican, Anglican, Anglican Church, Church in, in general. general. Yes, I think the sexuality issue is one of them. But I think, um, I think the Anglican Church, is, is because of its broad theology, is beginning to understand that we have to hold that in order to be Anglicans. And I think as soon as a branch of Anglicanism within Anglicanism says we can't be part of that and we want everyone to be like us, that section of the, uh, the, the church stands at risk of marginalizing itself. And that's a really hard thing to do. It happens um, in, in the breadth of Anglicanism, even within the school situation. 
because we have people of different Christian traditions coming in, and where we treat, when we, where we teach the, the theology of saying we want people to grapple with faith, and where you are is where we accept you. That's where God needs you to be, and you need to grow yourself. So we don't, um, we try not to tell people what to believe, but to f help them to grapple with issues and find their own way. And we're very open to that. And even in the school situation, we will have people coming home, say, you know, coming to us and saying, "You were teaching against creationism, and that's not in fitting with our particular denomination. Can we remove your our child from your Christian living classes?" And our response is. No, because Anglicanism is hospitable, and any grouping within that wide range of hospitality that is not prepared to be hospitable to any uh, stage of development or any certain belief that p people have does not fit within that ethos, and we are not prepared to change it because it holds everybody so beautifully, comfortably within their faith journey, wherever that might be. I don't know if that answers the question or if it confuses people more, but, you know, we're, we're often um, accused of being wishy-washy <laughs> or on the fence. But I think it's a great strength of Anglicanism that we hold people and respect tradition or contemporary worship or various brands of theology within it. Yeah. I'm sure, uh, Morgan, with papal um, authority, there's never any issues about tradition and struggles within the Catholic Church. So this could be an easy answer for you, is it? Mainly to do with worship or just general? In general. <laughs> just general? You can be general. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. A couple of points I'd make. I came to this area, this parish, one and a half years ago. One of the things, I've, I was a professor of pastoral theology at the seminary where we train for priests. One of the things I said to the men always, when you go to a new parish, take a balcony perspective. Just sit and look. Don't do anything. So I did that when I arrived at the parish. I just took a very deep balcony perspective. And it was fascinating. I changed nothing. So much so that people were saying, come on, what are you going to change? What are you going to do? Do it. And I said, no. But I added so much, it wasn't funny, that they wanted to leave the past behind. It was really interesting. What I found, particularly in worship, is that Catholics want to be welcomed at church. They want their priests to preach well and they want the space to be able to worship God. Don't clutter it. Let's worship God. So much so that mums and dads, families, they come and they say, all we want to do is sit. We don't want to do any ministry. No, I don't want to read. I don't want to give out communion. I don't want to be hospitality. I, don't, I just want to sit and praise God. Is that okay? And I wonder if church is a place like a lounge room where you just collapse after a week and just say, God, hang on to me while I'm here for the hour. That's where I think the change is coming is church is no longer that place where we're equipping people. It's a place where we're actually nurturing people to actually probably survive the next week. Because it's tough and life's tough. And I, and I like to acknowledge that with the people. The second thing that I think is changing is that I myself as a Catholic priest do not believe I'm in charge of the parish. I believe I have the ministry of headship. That's my ministry. And it's just as important as the man who does the flowers 
or the lady who vacuums or the person who does whatever. I am one ministry amongst many. And that's a change for my parish to understand that because they say, you're the boss, make the decision. And I said, I will, but not until I've consulted. And so that's a change for them to understand that father's no longer in control in that sense. The third thing I'd talk about, a great deep change, is child sexual abuse, the accusations. So much so that the number of priests who actually live in fear of anything to do with children is almost crippling half of our community. And how do we begin, I think, with the pendulum swung from one to the other, and I think we're beginning now to kind of come back to the middle a bit where there's a rationalism around it. But in the midst of all that child sexual abuse, in the midst of what people say the church and religion is denigrating, it's becoming nothing, our parish is actually increasing in numbers and the collection's going up. And that's always an indicator, isn't it? No, I'm only joking. But, you know, in the midst of that, you'd think young people would be running away from us, but they're not, you know? Our Sunday evening mass has about 100 to 200 adult, young adults at it every, eve- every Sunday. Great. Why aren't they running away? It's because the polemic, I think, between what the media and certain groups are saying is not actually matching reality. And so there's part of the reality is how do we as a church stand for what we stand for and identify for what we identify? How do we actually be... Christian? How do we be Catholic, Anglican, uniting or whatever? How do we actually claim who we are in society? That's a change that's coming more and more. And I think people are saying, I think I'm frightened of this, but I'll trust you and we can do it. And I said, I know we can. I know we can. Thanks. I'm going to ask a question slightly differently, if I can, to you, John. Um, I have noticed that we often get so caught up with our own problems that we don't appreciate that we can help or learn from others or share that we have the same problems as other churches. Have you got any advice for us as churches working together on how we can journey together with our struggles and we can learn from each other without trying to create carbon copies of um, what works in one context, which is not going to work in another. Um, how, how can we break down some of those divides and realise that my struggle is your struggle or my struggle can help you with yours? Well, you know, I, f- I find it quite difficult to sit with this language of struggle because Jesus, when he encountered people who were either ill or marginalised, did not spend a great deal of time analysing their misery, but rather pointed to the potential within them and challenged that to come out. You know, he heals a woman who's been crippled for 13 years, and people know her as the problem lady, the lady from whom perhaps you'd say to your kids, don't go near that woman, she's a bit odd, oh, a bit strange, her body doesn't work right, it's maybe her fault, you never know. And he brings this woman out and he cures her, and then he says, this woman is a daughter of Abraham. And suddenly the congregation who have seen her as a problem began to see her as somebody who was made to be kissed and to dance and to laugh and to party the same as any other woman. Uh, I, th- I think that when we, 
predicate our discussions individually and together on the problematic nature of what we're facing, then we fail to deal either with the bigger issues of justice, of ecology, of hospitality to the stranger, which Christ puts in front of us. And I, would, I think that if we're going to do things together, we have to begin with an agenda which does not deny that things, you know, sometimes things go wrong and numbers might not be what they are. But what is the positive aspect of discipleship which we can nurture and encourage in each other? And when can we do that without having to have people talking to us? Now, this meeting today was, you know, involves me quite a lot talking to you. But this afternoon, I'll allude perhaps to how when people are engaged in non-judgmental conversation about the nature of their faith and their discipleship, then the church begins to encourage each other and to grow. That's brilliant. Thank you. One uh, last opportunity um, for our, our panel. I'm, I won't ask you this one, John, because you get, you, you get a whole hour to talk about this after lunch. Um, but have you got any words of wisdom on how we might be able to preserve, uh, uh, revitalise or reimagine um, our traditions as we approach um, a changing world? Father Morgan. May I tell you an antidote? When I arrived here in the parish... Um, and I won't tell you which church this happened. They alarmed the church. You know, with the alarms, we have to put the passion. And I said, what happens when the alarm goes off? And they said, it goes, burr, 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 burr. And I said, what happens then? They said, nothing. You have to come and turn it off. And I said to a number of people, I said, um, how come you don't come and do ministry in the church or that? And they said, because we're dead set scared of the alarm. So I turned it off. And I haven't turned it on for a year and a half. And the number of people who have come back and they're doing ministry in the church and they feel happy about it and they're doing that, it's absolutely amazing. Sometimes I, I think there are different ways of doing things. And I think, and I tell that antidote only for this reason, you don't have to go and break into my church now, that I'm okay about the church being broken into. It doesn't worry me. What are they going to steal? Okay. But, you know, and I said to them, they asked me that question. I said, it's okay. I said, we have enough homeless sleeping outside our front door. They'll protect us. So I actually give meals to the homeless and coffee, and I ask them, would you protect our church when we're not here? They said, okay. And I think it's been a wonderful working together with the homeless that sleep outside the church, and the church being not alarmed. And people, so much so that we've now started a street outreach mission. And people have seen the need and how we can work together. And in fact, we've involved other churches in that. The Anglican Church, Erin um, Perry, they actually have our van, stays outside their church. And the Uniting Church collects food. It's just a, a wonderful getting together ecumenically. Just because we look at something differently or from a different perspective. And so when we come to, say, tradition in our worship time, I think what it is, is using that as a story, is that sometimes it's not having a huge change, but it's allowing people to look at things from different perspectives, saying it's okay what you think, but here's something else to think further about. And in the midst of that, knowing that it's Jesus Christ, led by the Holy Spirit in a movement to the Father.
and that we understand our movement towards God as part of what we are on about. And then it begins to make sense for them. I hope that helps. That's brilliant. Ken. So um, what, what words of wisdom would you give to those gathered here about how we handle tradition to preserve, to maintain, to reimagine, to reinvigorate? Okay, I'm not sure that I have words of wisdom, but I just think we've got to go back to the roots, to the relationship. I was so moved about three Wednesdays ago, one of the retired priests here in the Wednesday morning com- service just reminded these old dudes, about 30 of us, that we need to go back to receiving Jesus as our Saviour and Lord and living it out. And if we can have that constant walk with Christ, empowered by the presence of his Spirit and loving, there are so many good things that happen in this place. Some people only want the traditional, and that's fantastic. I don't want to change them. But I want to work out ways how we could have 150 more people at 7.30. Because I don't think, as a church, as churches, we do our marketing or our advertising. We, they're swear words. But there are people out there. I meet them when I do funerals. Oh, we haven't been to church for a... We used to come. Then, as we move through the range of experiences, sometimes I don't want to change people's traditional thinking, but I want them to be open. I sneak back into the 9.30 service sometimes because that's where my heart is. We actually go to the 7.30 service because it's a community experience for us. Because a dear saint of God who talked for several years to my wife most mornings in a coffee shop invited us to come. He's died and gone to heaven. But there's been a group of people that have picked us up and made us feel so much part of this place. And we share the group after church. But like the night, I wish some of those folk could experience the service that happened just before Easter. The place was packed. One of the school grades came. The chaplain took part. She did communion. I sat over there and I watched her invite about 25 kids to come and stand around the table. Because she said, so often you just sit down there and you don't know. Come and stand with me. And she explained it to them. She even had the sheer courage to talk to them about what the blood of Jesus meant. And she referred it to being so close to life, the blood. And then these kids all came to communion. And there was grape juice for them. And my Methodist heart said, thank you, Lord. (laughs) I sat over there and I cried and I prayed. I cried because it was just a beautiful experience to see four generations working together because there's a lot of older people come to that service. And I prayed that there would be churches like this and that service in Adelaide and Sydney and that there'd be a caring family of a church that looked after my grandchildren because they're a long way away. So I'm encouraged. I'm probably too much of a traditionist sometimes I want to hold on to the things that are strong. I want to be open to ways that the Spirit gives us so that we might bring people to faith, help them grow in discipleship, and then share in some of the things that you've just talked about that's happening at Burley. I'm an old traditionalist. (laughs)
Thanks again. Probably appropriate that that um, school chaplain might give the, the final word. Well, I didn't mention any names. <laughs> I think for us, um, I mean, Rabina does an, an amazing job at, of this, but in the, in, the, in the school community, which is so different, the advice I would give is be relational and find out where people are and then take the opportunity to be creative and to, to find something that will bring them into the space. So let me give you an example. Um, we have a sports team. How do we get sporting kids that are out on the ovals every single week into a chapel experience that they might know that God is there with them on the ovals too? Well, let's have a sports celebration. So we framed an entire service into the form of a game, but they learned about Anglican liturgy. The words might have been different, but they learned about responsorial liturgy. They learned about the peace in the context of a game that they could then later relate into the communion service that they had in chapel. You know, um, the, the performing arts violin teacher came and said, I've got this beautiful, my students are doing Haydn's last words of Jesus on the cross. I'd love to do something. I said, yes, let's do tenebrae. And so for the first time, we did a tenebrae service with these students and their parents and others. And it was just a magnificent traditional experience which spoke to the soul. I had somebody who said I was sitting in that service and as I sat there reflecting, I had this overwhelming sense that I, I just want to be baptized with my family. Can I do that? And I said, yeah, we have a Celtic service coming up. And so we're going to do a Celtic service with a baptism and communion. We might just fudge the admission to communion, but, but we'll have that. And we're going to have bread baking in the background and talk about the hospitality of Christ in that service. And so I have the freedom because I have a beautiful headmaster who also is a part of this parish who says to me, go for it. I don't know what you're going to do next, but go for it. And I have a beautiful team of people around me that, that, that just allow me to be courageous in that way. And then we have a valedictory, which is prayer book, straight up and down traditional. Because I think that just once in their schooling career, our students need to experience a proper prayer book, traditional Anglican service, and the bishop rejoices. Just once. <laughs> Would you please uh, thank our panel uh, for their generosity and their time? And can I pray for the uh, lunch you're about to...